Lord, open my lips that my mouth may proclaim your praise. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Uh, My favorite uh, TV viewing is food shows, and particularly English food shows. There's one at the moment called the Great British Bake Off, and it's uh, got all of Britain actually baking, so that the bakeries now um, have less and less people going to them. Um, That's just to say bake-offs, travel shows, but even with that, um, we're over a year out from the election, and these other things keep coming up on my screen, and not the least of which are the presidential candidates. Now, you'll never have me say from the pulpit, um, which is my preference. Uh, There's a division of church and state in this country, so I don't go down that road. But, um, you know, we've been seeing a lot of these folks on our TV screens, even in our Facebook feeds, and uh, they're all vying for that uh, top place of President of the United States of America. But behind the scenes, they've got teams of people working to promote their candidate. Um, Some may be altruistically, but I think at the back of their heads always is this idea that if my candidate wins, I've got a really close place to power in this country. So, you know, maybe if they're already up there, a place in the cabinet, a place on the staff, um, there's a jostling for that kind of positional authority. That's what's happening with the disciples today. They're on the road walking back to Capernaum, and it's not a friendly discourse. They're having an argument amongst themselves as to who is the greatest. Because Jesus has just asked them, who do people say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Peter has has responded, you are the Messiah, which in the minds of all of them now, is that he's going to come in and be king. He's going to have a throne. Everybody's going to bow down to him. He's going to be the high muckety-muck, and therefore... They're going to be in the sphere of power. Uh, Janet Hagbird wrote this wonderful book called The Stages of Power. In her staging of power, this is stage two, second to the bottom rung on the power totem pole. So the very lowest stage of power is power by coercion, power by fear. Power at the end of a sword, not great leaders. They can only lead if they instill fear and if their tool is death or torture. And we've seen a lot of that in the world today. The next lowest stage of power is power by association. If I'm associated with somebody great, then the power that they have automatically accrues to me. The next stage is is power by achievement. Uh, If we've got a lot of diplomas on our walls 
or um, the cars that we drive or what, um, what our profession is or our business is. It's power by achievement. That's pretty much what we do in the West. Power by achievement. It goes up. Power by reflection, where they're not grasping after power, but there's a great reflection going on. People who are trying to make other people advance until we get to the top stage of power, which is the sixth stage of power. Power by wisdom. These people aren't interested in power, but they have natural leadership abilities because they're always giving away. They're always empowering others and their center of power comes from a transcendent source. It comes from God himself and just flows through them. They, they pare down to very, very simple lives. There's only really been one person um, in all of history who has this kind of power, and it's Jesus Christ himself. Uh, because he didn't grasp onto power. Right? We, we hear in that wonderful Christ hymn in Philippians, and what we were singing, the songs again, Paddy, God does this, doesn't he? The Holy Spirit just kind of works together. Uh, our, our opening one where, where it's talking about, it's based on that Philippians, Christ hymn in chapter 2 of Paul's letter to the Philippians, where God is not a God who grasps onto power. He's not a God who uh, uses coercion or fear. In fact, fear is of the enemy. Right, So the bottom rung of power is that which is used by the enemy of our souls. He empties himself. This is the characteristic of a loving God. Not to grasp onto anything, but to give himself away, to pour himself out, to humble himself. The incarnate Christ came and emptied himself of all the powers of divinity, became, humbled himself to take on frail flesh, humbled himself even further, as we have already just sung, to death on the cross. Let the cross be our glory. But the disciples here are on the road and they're arguing amongst themselves. When he comes into power, I'm going to be at his right hand. I'm going to be up there on the throne in the place of power. And Jesus knows what they've been talking about. But they haven't got what he's been saying because he's already said, now he said it again, that he's going to Jerusalem to be handed over into the hands of man and to die a painful death on a cross and the third day to rise again. And Mark says they didn't understand and they were afraid to ask him what he meant. Remember, he's been talking to them in parables and they haven't gotten the parables and sometimes he's had to say, you're so dull, why aren't you twigging it? Why didn't you get it? And so now they're afraid to ask, but he's not speaking in a parable. He's speaking quite plainly. This is what will happen. But evidently they haven't got it because they're thinking about thrones and power. And so when they come into the house in Capernaum, he takes a little child 
places the little child on his lap and says to them, your association with me will not give you any special social standing in this world. In fact, a child will be as able to come into my presence and know me as you are. There will be no mediatory uh, person to come into the throne room of God except Jesus Christ, except Jesus himself who throws himself uh, on the cross for us, who gives himself for us, who empties himself out for us. This is God's way. It's not the world's way, is it? We're grasping after things, and yet God pours himself out and gives himself away for us. This is, this is the love of God that is exemplified for us. God's way is a way of humility and self-giving. And that, says James, must be the way of God's followers too. He says, show by your good life that your works are done with goodness born of wisdom. That sixth stage of power that Janet Hagberg talks about is power by wisdom. That's what, we're to, uh, that's what we're to look towards. That's what we're to transform our lives into. That we give ourselves over to that way of life, which is God's way of life. The opposite of that way of good life, James says, is where bitter envy and selfish ambition fill the heart. What is required for envy or jealousy but comparison. Envy requires that we compare ourselves to others and find ourselves wanting. We want what they have. It's why God included in the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not covet. We think of that commandment, don't we, about coveting other people's possessions. But advertising thrives on this idea of comparison and we've become desensitized by its allure. But we compare our relationships, we compare our bodies, we compare our friendships, our intellects, our jobs. The church isn't immune. We have charts and graphs where we compare average Sunday attendance. How good are we doing on the scale of comparison with the church down the road? It creates envy. It creates discord. Conflicts and disputes, this compulsion to comparison leads us, James says, to envy, jealousy, boasting, fault-finding, selfish ambition, and disorder and wickedness of every kind. That's the world's wisdom, and it creates conflicts and disputes and cravings. We want something that we don't have, says James, and we commit murder. Maybe not literally, although sometimes people have committed murder because they're jealous or envious about what somebody else has. And again, it's not necessarily things. 
But Jesus says in his Sermon on the Mount that if you're angry with your brother or your sister, then you've committed murder in your heart. See, that also is a craving that we have. We get angry with somebody else who has something that we want or that we don't have. But what is the antidote to worldly wisdom? It's wisdom from above. It's God's wisdom. And at the beginning of his book, James says that if you but ask God for that kind of wisdom, then he will pour it out onto you. That kind of wisdom will be yours. And what does it look like? James says it's pure In other words, no selfish ambition. It's peaceable, looking for reconciliation, not conflict, being reconcilers rather than disputers or fault finders. It is gentle, not angry or argumentative, willing to yield, not needing to be always right, full of mercy, willing to forgive, not holding a grudge without a trace of partiality or hypocrisy. In other words, not biased, deceitful or insincere, but trustworthy, fair, honest. As I've gone through that list, you might be thinking, well, that sounds a lot like Paul's fruit of the Spirit that's found in Galatians. (coughs) It's true. Because that, again, the fruit of a good life the good works, a good life that's shown forth, that is mirrored after the life of Jesus, who humbled himself, gave himself up for us, poured himself out for us, shows forth in the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's what we're to be transformed into. Let the cross be our glory and then we are transformed into Jesus, into his way of life, into power by wisdom where his wisdom just flows through us. We're not grasping onto anything. We're not comparing ourselves with any, anybody else where envy and jealousy rise up. But God's wisdom through the power of the Holy Spirit flows through us. Now, the fruit of the Spirit is hard work. It just doesn't come upon us because the world draws us to this compulsion of comparison to the world's ways. So it takes an act of our wills, but of course we can't do it just by ourselves. It takes us surrendering to the life of the Holy Spirit that is in us, that comes and dwells in us at our baptism, and allowing that Holy Spirit to transform us. It's a discipline of our wills, a study of God's word, to more fully know his ways, a discipline of daily prayer to hear the humble voice of our loving God encouraging us on the journey. Imagine, if you will, uh, your neighborhood and uh, a neighbor down the street who is always blowing his own horn. You know, I did this. You know, I did that. You know, I'm really good at that. 
ready to argue with anyone, always trying to one-up the Joneses, talks about everyone behind their backs and is ready to get into a dispute at the drop of a hat. Your lawnmower came two inches over my side of the grass. There's another neighbor who's always ready to help, whose presence brings a sense of peace and calm, who always tries to reconcile neighbors, who's kindly in every dispute, never talking about himself and never talking about anybody else behind their backs, but to their faces, always trying to raise them up, make them feel special, make them feel good about themselves. Who would you want as your neighbor? Will you be that neighbor? Will you be that neighbor? Not by yourself, but by an act of will, but by the power of the Holy Spirit within you. And James says, this is the way. Submit yourself to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. And a harvest of righteousness will be sown in peace for you who make peace. May we look at the cross for our glory. And in looking at the cross and the one who poured himself out and humbled himself, may we work towards that in our own lives. Power by wisdom, letting the wisdom of the Holy Spirit flow through us in good lives. May it be so. Amen.